One of the world's most important objects is small, simple and made of stone. Its invention marks a crucial moment in human history when people began planting crops and growing their own food. The shift to farming sustained larger populations, villages became towns, became cities. Entire civilizations grew in no small part due to the creation of the humble stone pestle. I'm Charles Woolley. And I'm Kim McKay, Director and CEO of the Australian Museum. We're the nation's first museum and we house the treasures of our nation and the region. We're going to discover some of those today in the newly restored Westpac Long Gallery. So join us in exploring the iconic, astounding and curious objects that have helped shape Australia and the world as we uncover the hidden stories of 200 treasures of the Australian Museum. Kim, increasingly as I immerse myself in the Melanesian aspects of this amazing collection, I'm finding things that are exotic but at the same time strangely familiar. Why is that? Well, of course, Melanesia was one of the longest histories of agriculture in the world and so the objects that you're looking at were used in day-to-day -day life and I think probably one of the most significant objects in the museum's collection is this bird-shaped pestle. It's believed to be between 3,000 and 8,000 years old. And oddly I have seen things almost exactly like this in the Middle East and also in the west coast of Africa. Yes and it's I mean, a, a pestle is a pestle. A pestle it? is a pestle. It's a tool for pounding plants and it reminds us that for most early farmers, producing food was as much about survival as it was about ritual and religion. And multiple layers of meaning are revealed here as we learn more of the place where humans, nature, story and science are entangled here in Melanesia. And of course, always remembering as you go through this remarkable collection that we all came out of Africa 50 or 60,000 years ago and already brought cultural influences with us. Exactly. It's the story of human survival and development. And of course, the people in this area of Melanesia have one of the oldest histories of food production in the world. They began exploiting plants like yams and taro soon after arriving there some 40,000 years ago. And uh, crops were being grown by 9,000 years ago. And the agricultural practices form part of a complex and abiding relationship with nature. And of course, in coastal communities, this also includes uh, the life in the sea. They were excellent fishermen and seagoing people. If you're going to hunt and fish and farm, you need something sharp, don't you? And without metal, what do you use? Well, the whole area, Charlie, was volcanically active. You look at the geology of the area and this is where this incredible obsidian was found. It's a beautiful jet black material, isn't it? It sure is. It's a, it's a volcanic rock and when it splits it creates very sharp edges. Indeed and Dr Robin Torrance here at the Australian Museum has been doing some groundbreaking research on the use of obsidian and even tracing uh, to see if there are blood fragments left on the on the uh, cutting edge of these beautifully styled implements. Yeah, knives and long, long, long spearheads. They're lovely, aren't they? They really are, but intricate details. So 
you can see that culturally everything was thought about. Time was taken. Each of those particular shapes means something. So we know that the zigzag shape is quite an assertive symbol right throughout Melanesia yeah, these are the and the Pacific. You, the hilts you're talking about, which are decorated, I mean, you pretty much just, it's trial and error, splitting obsidian to get something that looks like a good knife or a spearhead. You just keep doing it until it occurs. But then you decorate. You decorate. You spend enormous amounts of time decorating. So these are the implements held in the hand. And of course, you need a handle. You need something that then you can use the cutting edge with. And these are, are they woven? It looks to me like material has been wrapped around and around and around in a lot of squares and triangles. And, uh, and painted. And, and then painted. They're really beautiful objects. They're stunning. Can you put a value on them? I know that's a mercenary thing to ask here in this hallowed precinct, but what's, what, what's it worth? Well, objects like this, of course, are traded on the open market around the world. And when we value the collections of the Australian Museum, we do have reference points. But to us, Charlie, we don't want to replace them through selling them. So they so are literally invaluable. They're priceless. Yeah. Show me this. Looks like five blokes holding onto each other's shoulders on the prow of a boat. In fact, they're five brothers and they're from the Azmat tribe in New Guinea, in West Papua. And of course, this is the famous headhunting tribe that we've all read uh. about in books. They earlier practiced cannibalism. In fact, you might have heard of the story of Michael Rockefeller, who Indeed. in the early 60s, uh, it has been demonstrated now killed by Azmat people. At that time, it was a revenge killing where people in their own tribe had been killed by some Dutch colonialists and so seeking revenge Michael Rockefeller was sort of collecting Azmat tribal symbols at the time a lot of them you can see in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York but here we've got an example of a beautifully carved canoe prow and of course what what do you think those heads are they're hornbills so the heads of the five brothers are actually more like a, a bird. Oh. Um, now, Michael Rockefeller was a, a, the whole family, great philanthropists, uh, uh, supporters of the arts and culture, and, and he was a collector. He was. He was only in his early 20s at the time he was killed. He was fascinated by Papua New Guinea, as most of the world was. Mm. You know, this was the last place on earth undiscovered, where savages, well, as they Well, remembering how excited the young David Attenborough was when he first went there. Well, exactly. Just any young explorer who ended up there had new tales to tell. Now, of course, the museum had been going to these areas for many years, Hurley, Frank Hurley, the photographer, of course, had been there since the 1920s. But this was in the 60s, so in living memory uh, of when Michael Rockefeller was trying to collect there and, of course, met his end. So these fellas speared him and ate him? We believe so. There was a book produced recently called Savage Harvest, which researched how this happened and has found the evidence that this is exactly what happened in the local community. Rockefeller's one of the richest men on earth, a multi-billionaire, the most expensive meal they ever ate, I bet. Well, probably, although he was, in the last photographs that are in the book that I saw of him, he was pretty skinny, so I don't know how satisfying it might have been. Above it, 
there's a wonderful bird, and I think it's a stork of some description. It's ornate, it's beaded and woven and uh, carved of wood, and it looks like it might almost fly. It's got, the wings are uh, like the balsa wood model that a child might throw into the air, aren't they? This is a spectacular example of a stork, heavily beaded, as you said, and recently it's undergone extensive conservation here at the museum in our conservation lab. It's a very fragile, beautiful depiction of a bird and used in ceremony, of course, and associated with specific totems in the community. So we have this extraordinary conservation lab downstairs in the basement of the museum where a whole team of highly trained conservators work to look after all sorts of objects in the collection. And as you can see, this is a very delicate uh, object that they've really How worked they on extensively. How possibly source the uh, material to restore? I mean... The well, more I look at it, the deeper and more complex it is. I mean, people can't actually get an idea about it, can they, unless they come here and look at it as we are. But those are myriad of little shells. So if you're missing a few of those, where do you get them? Well, you don't replace them. Right. I mean, that's the first thing. What our conservators do is they ensure there's no further deterioration. Right. So they're not actually going out and sourcing they're something not restoring. new. They're not in the traditional way you would think. In which case, this is in pretty bloody good condition then, isn't it? It is, and now it's in even better condition. From 18 million treasures in the Australian Museum, we've selected just 200 for you to consider. But even exploring this distillation is going to take us on a long and exciting adventure. I hope you will join Australian Museum Director Kim Mackay and myself as we continue our extraordinary odyssey through the collections of the Australian Museum. And of course, you can see it for yourself in the Westpac Long Gallery at the Australian Museum in Sydney. I'm Charles Woolley. And I'm Kim Mackay. We'll see you next time.